Well, a few years ago, they did a famous test known as the marshmallow test. Psychologists put children in a room with marshmallows on a table, and they said, if you don't eat the marshmallows, I'll be back in 15 minutes. I'll give you twice as many. And if you eat the marshmallows, then you won't get any more. They left the room, and then they watched what would happen. And of course, some kids did eat the marshmallows. Other kids waited, and the 15 minutes were up. They got twice as many. What they did, though, is they followed those kids until they got to college. And the interesting thing is the ones who ate the marshmallows who couldn't delay gratification, they scored much lower on test scores. They also did much worse on physical fitness tests. So the ones who were able to wait had a whole different outcome because they were able to have what we would say patience. And again, they were able to deny something that they wanted in the moment. Now, this past week was the Day of Atonement, the day when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and offer the sacrifice. But there's more to the Day of Atonement than that profound truth. And if you look at Leviticus 16, here's something to consider in this month of these feasts. Leviticus 16, 29 says about this feast, the Feast of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, it shall be a statute for you that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your soul. That terminology, afflict your soul, it's repeated again then when Moses continues, this day shall be an atonement made to cleanse you, so you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest, you shall afflict your soul. And that's the King James word and other translations instead of afflict have you shall fast or you shall kneel in prayer and humble thyself. All of those words fit in the context of the statement here. And part of the day of atonement is about having a sense of self-denial. And so the context is, when we look at these feasts and think about this month of the feast, it's about taking some time to say, you know what, how shall I have something to deny myself so I can move closer to Christ? And it might be to deny yourself of some entertainment time, or maybe it's denying yourself of a, of a sin that you continue to do and you say, you know what, I'm committing that to God and I'm going to stop doing that very behavior because I honor what he's given to me. Part of the Day of Atonement is to afflict the soul. Again, not something to be painful, but to deny self. And so consider that in this month here. Something else to consider here about this time of year in these feasts is to stop and say, you know, there's an annulment ceremony that happened on the Day of Atonement. And here's how Ole Anthony defines that. The ceremony was there for each person to proclaim all personal vows, oaths, goals, ambitions, unthinking words, etc. They made, wittingly or unwittingly, whether it was rashly or unknowingly, during the year, shall be null and void. This is a big part of the Day of Atonement. It's been around for some 1,500 years, but people take this time to say, you know what, there are things I've said. I shouldn't have said, and I turn from that. There are commitments I made that I did not keep, vows I did not stick to. And so during this time, this month of these feasts, let me turn from that, repent of that, and commit to doing better. So the Day of Atonement, it's the day of the sacrifice, but it's also a day to say, what can I do to deny 
that part of me that always wants to just be about self. It's also a time to stop and say vows, words, things that I've said that I should not have said, then let me then repent of that. And Jesus would say, just let your yes be yes, your no be no. Be a person who does what they said they would do. Don't swear by heaven or earth. Just let your yes be yes. James actually repeated those words as well. Something else on the Day of Atonement, Hebrews 10, 1 and 2 tells us, if the Day of Atonement was sufficient to cover sins, note these words, the worshipers would no longer have felt guilt for their sin. Since the day was not sufficient, Christ became that ultimate once for all sacrifice. And part of being in him is then the guilt for sin should no longer exist. Doesn't mean we don't have sin and that we repent of that sin. But since we are cleansed, we don't have to live in the past and say, you know what, I carry this burden. You simply say, you know what, he's declared me not guilty and the day of atonement is not one day a year in Christ, it's every day in him. And so part of the celebration, how can I deny myself? What vows or words have I not kept? And let me be sure to know that promise that I should not feel guilt about my sin if it's been nailed to the cross, I bear it no more. Last thing about the Day of Atonement, John 1.29, as we talked before, John the Baptist saw Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus baptized on the Day of Atonement. Where does he go? Well, just like the Day of Atonement, scapegoat would be sent off into the wilderness a symbol, that prayer, a symbol that the sins of the people was being removed from the city and out into the wilderness, the scapegoat taking the punishment. Well, Jesus what? Baptized, and he goes off where? Into the wilderness. The difference, of course, is he goes out and defeats the enemy there. So here's a fascinating thing, and see if you can guess who might have said this. It's called the real miracle. I can't help wondering how we can explain away to me the greatest miracle. A young man's father is a carpenter. He works in his father's shop. One day starts preaching in the nearby countryside, walking place to place, and he is then arrested, convicted, executed at age 33 with two common thieves. End of story. No, the young man who left no written word has for 2,000 years had a greater effect on the world than all the rulers, kings, emperors, conquerors, generals, admirals, scholars, scientists, philosophers who have ever lived if you put all of them together. How do we explain that? Unless he really was who he said he was. The person who wrote that, President Ronald Reagan, shortly before he entered into office. His plea, stop and consider who Christ says that he is, who the apostle says, said that he is. So we're going to look at some things here, four specific promises in Christ where he was showing the people that he is Messiah. Now Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies and people saw in the foreshadowing of scripture, all these pointing to him and all the miracles were just as special. But there were four that show he is that 
lamb to take away the sin of the world. So if you have somebody that you want to talk to about Christ, here's four things you can say. You know what? If you want to consider honestly the claims in Scripture, here are four things that show he's Messiah. If you're struggling with your own faith, these four things were done for you and for me. As John said, that we might know and believe Christ is the Son of God and then our faith be strengthened and encouraged in him. Another fascinating experiment here. I got to see this one myself, actually. It's called the think-drink effect. Psychologists gather some people in a room for a dinner party, hand them some drinks, and say this is a, a new wine or a new beer. Then they watch what's happening. They come back before long and the group is intoxicated. The catch, psychologically, is they gave the people all drinks that were non-alcoholic. It was the belief that they were drinking alcohol, and in that belief they became intoxicated. Medically, as we've talked, you know, placebo's belief is the drug. And the context of how powerful belief is, is it drives our very behavior. And so we have to be clear on what it is that we believe, who we believe in, and understand that those beliefs shall direct our very living, our very lives. So we're going to take a few minutes. Here are four things that Jesus did to fulfill the promise so that we would believe and put our faith in him and live differently day to day in our lives. Four miracles that Messiah did, nobody else did. The first one, Luke chapter 17, we're told this, Jesus went into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. As we've said before, when you see details like a number or a specific place, specific name, it's not just for reference. There's a reason we're told 10 lepers appear. And here's the reason, people said, no one can be healed of leprosy except maybe when Messiah comes, perhaps he could heal a leper. And what happens here? Jesus sees 10 lepers. We're told this, they stood at a distance and cried, Jesus, have pity on us. When Jesus saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. As they went, they were cleansed. They were looking for Messiah to appear to maybe heal one leper, and Jesus heals 10. There's a beautiful song written just a few years back by Clay Cross, and he says, do I have to turn water into wine, some stones into bread? Do I have to paint my heart across the sky in a blazing shade of red? Do I have to put the sun into the sea to make you fall in love with me. If that's what it takes, then let it be. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. People were looking for one leper. Jesus heals 10. Next, Matthew chapter 9. We're told this, while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. Notice the second verse. When the demon was driven out, the man who was mute spoke. And notice what the crowd says. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. 
Why were they so stunned? There were healers at that time. There were other people who could bring about deliverance for somebody spiritually oppressed. However, the firm belief was to cast out a demon, you had to speak to the victim and get the name of the spirit that afflicted them. The spirit of fear, the spirit of anger, whatever it was. And so nobody believed somebody that was mute could be healed. How would you get the name of the demon? And what does Jesus do? Heals a man who is mute. And again, the crowd say nothing. Nothing like this has been seen in Israel. Third miracle, John chapter 9. This is a very detailed miracle. And some people said, celebrate this. And other people were not so happy about this. And the reason behind that is the religious leader said, this man is getting too much attention and the Romans are going to come in and cause more problems for us here. Plus, we will lose control of the masses because they're starting to follow this carpenter. So John chapter 9, notice what happens. Jesus went along. He saw a man born blind. Go, he told the man, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went, washed, and came home seeing. And notice what happens next. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. So John chapter 9, very detailed. We'll just read a few verses. One man cries out. You remember at this point, the disciples said, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind. And Jesus said, neither. He's here. He's about to glorify God. And Jesus tells him, go and wash in the pool. And the man goes away seeing. And the crowds immediately do what? They go and get the Pharisees, the religious leaders. So here's what happens next. Verse 18 and 19. The Pharisees sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was, notice, born blind? How is it he can now see? They're very concerned because here's the next belief. Nobody can be healed that was born blind. What's the belief? Only the Messiah could heal somebody born blind. That's why Jesus said to the disciples, it's not this man's sin. It's not his parents' sin. He's here to glorify God. Heals the man born blind. The Pharisees are so upset, they call in the parents. Are you sure this is your son? Are you sure he was born blind? And notice what happens next. Verse 20 and 21, the parents say, we know he was born blind. How he can see now, who opened his eyes, we don't know. All the crowds are stirred up now. Somebody born blind has been healed. What happens next? A second time, they summon the man born blind. Give glory to God and tell the truth. And the man replied, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. The people asked, how did you open your eyes? Nothing again like this has been seen in Israel. So, heals 10 lepers, heals a mute, and then heals a man born blind. The fourth one, as we close, may be the most well-known miracle of all. John chapter 11. Something else again, only Messiah could do. A man named Lazarus was sick, so the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. 
When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, notice what happens. He stayed where he was two more days. Interesting. Confusing for some people. He hears Jesus is, or he hears Lazarus is sick, and Jesus said, Stay here. And they wait two more days. In fact, by the time they do arrive to Judea, we're told very specifically on his arrival, Jesus found Lazarus had been in the tomb, and again, specifically, four days. What happens next? The sisters run up to Jesus and say, if you had been here before now, he could have been saved. Where have you been? And Jesus says what? I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll never die. Do you believe this? And the sisters say what? I believe you're Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. And what did Jesus tell them? Did I not say, if you wait, you will see the miracle of God? Move down in John chapter 11. You'll see this. Jesus deeply moved, came to the tomb. Take away the stone, he said. And Martha said, Lord, by this time, there's a bad odor. And notice she specifies he's been there four days. What happens next? Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. And many of the people, we are told, saw what Jesus did, believed in him, but some went and told the Pharisees and the chief priest what had happened. And the Pharisees and chief priest at that time began to plot Jesus' arrest and even to then find Lazarus, kidnap him, put him in hiding, or even kill him because they saw the crowds and the awe the people had. Why is that? Well, again, the specified words are, Lazarus was in the tomb four days. Jesus waited two days to make sure it was four days. Why? The belief at that time was that a person could still be resurrected within three days. They had this belief that the soul stayed around earth. It's not a biblical belief, but in the first century, they taught and believed a soul would stay for three days, so resurrection was possible. People in the Old Testament, there are people that were brought back from the grave. It just didn't happen after 72 hours. What does Jesus do? He waits four days. Why? Because this sickness is not unto death. Lazarus is going to be a living testimony that Messiah has come. Again, all through Scripture, everything pointing to Christ, four things only Messiah could do. Heal a leper, Jesus healed ten. Deliver somebody mute, Jesus did it in front of the crowds. Heal a man born blind, Jesus said, absolutely, this man is here to glorify God. Resurrect somebody after three days impossible, they said. And Jesus waited specifically four days to proclaim, Lazarus, come forth. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Let us spend this time during these feasts through September. What are some things to deny self, to focus more on Him? What are some things we've said Maybe even vows we committed, or maybe just simply said to God, I'm going to do this, and we didn't do that. We need to go back and revisit that 
turn from that, repent from that, and make right the things we need to make right with other people. And let your yes be yes, your no be no, and ultimately find tremendous faith and hope in Messiah who did very specific things so we would know the desired of all nations has come. Billy Graham said one of his favorite stories took place a hundred years ago in Scotland. There was an inn, people having dinner, and these men were gathered at a table sharing stories and a waitress walked by and one of the men was boisterous, using his arms and talking very loudly, didn't see her, swung his arm out, hit the tray. She had tea on the tray. The tea went all over the wall. The owner came out, wall painted white, and he said, well, I guess we'll have to repaint the whole thing. Then a voice of another man said, perhaps not. This man was Sir Edwin Landseer, a famous wildlife painter. His paintings still sell for a lot of money today. He got his paint, his brushes, spent hours, and he painted a picture of a deer on the wall, a beautiful image you can see many places now reproduced. And Billy Graham said, you know, what a gospel message. That God has taken the stain the sin, the brokenness, and the fear, and in Christ delivered us from all of that to make our life a masterpiece. Do I have to paint my heart across the sky in a blazing shade of red? Do I have to put the sun into the sea to make you fall in love with me? If that's what it takes, then let it be.